You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Well, I, uh, I hope you had a good sleep. I did not, but that's okay. Uh, I I hope you're feeling fresh and ready to go for this session. In this session, we're going to try and put some real meat on the theology of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Session four, we're going to try and land it in what does this mean for us? But in these talks, we are exploring the doctrine of the Trinity, and in our first talk yesterday, we introduced three challenges that have come against the doctrine of the Trinity in the last few hundred years. It's not in the Bible it's not coherent, and it's not practical. Uh, In our second talk yesterday, we tackled that first challenge, and my aim was to show you that, yes, the doctrine is biblical. And we finished last night by summarizing what we saw in three statements. There is one God, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each identified with that one God, but they are distinguished by the relations between them as Father, Son, and Spirit. In this third talk, we are going to tackle that second challenge, which says the doctrine isn't coherent, it doesn't make sense. And so that is our question for this talk, is the doctrine coherent? And I'm going to pray and ask God to help us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank and we praise you for revealing yourself to us in your Son. We pray that you might focus our minds and soften our hearts as we come to contemplate who you are and who you have been from all eternity. We pray that you might be present with us even now by your Spirit. Amen. Just a moment ago, we said the Nicene Creed together. Uh, Christians have been saying that together since it was first written in the 4th century. Uh, We'll talk about it a little more throughout this talk, but I want to start by drawing your attention to one line in particular. We are on page 51 of our booklets, and the one line I want to draw your attention to is this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ of the same essence as the Father or in some translations, consubstantial. You'll see why in a second. Let me ask you this. What do you think it actually means to say that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father? What does that mean? Or maybe you've heard the language of three persons. One God in three persons. Have you heard that language before? What does it mean to say God is one in essence, but three in persons. How would you answer that? Well, let me remind you of what Richard Dawkins said about Jesus being consubstantial or of the same essence as the Father. Richard Dawkins says, Arius of Alexandria, in the 4th century AD, denied that Jesus was consubstantial, i.e. of the same substance or essence with God. What on earth could that possibly mean, you're probably asking? Substance. What substance? What exactly do you mean by essence? Very little seems the only reasonable reply. According to Dawkins, the word essence means very little at all. 
And so for him, the doctrine is incoherent. It's meaningless. It doesn't make sense. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you, but Dawkins wasn't actually the first person to ever question whether the Trinity was coherent. Um, While I do think this, this challenge has been ramped up in the last few hundred years, there have always been people who've said that the Trinity doesn't make sense. Now, there are some people like Dawkins who will just write the Trinity off as complete nonsense, but there are some people who have tried to tweak the Trinity in an effort to help it make a bit more sense, to fix it up a little, to make it a bit more coherent, at least in their eyes. And they will always go one of two ways. Either they'll overemphasize the threeness and downplay the oneness, or they'll overemphasize the oneness and downplay the threeness. Uh, Yesterday, we called those two dangers mere monotheism and tritheism when we looked at what the doctrine of the Trinity is not. But these two dangers actually have a name. Both of them come from around the 4th century AD, and the first is what we call Arianism, named after a guy called Arius. And as we'll see, Arianism isn't exactly tritheism, but what it does is it overplays the threeness and leaves out the oneness. It pulls the Trinity apart. That's Arianism. On the flip side is what we call modalism or sometimes Sabellianism. And modalism overplays the oneness. It loses any threeness. It flattens out the Trinity into just a big blob of divinity, simply known as God. And these two, Arianism and modalism, they are the two big Trinitarian heresies that have stuck around since they were first uh, came on, since they first came on the scene around the 4th century. Both of them were born out of a desire to make the Trinity a little more coherent, to tweak it. But as we're going to see today, what they actually end up doing is sabotaging and undermining the Trinity to the point where it is no longer biblical and ultimately no longer Christian. But what these heresies also did is that they forced a whole lot of Christians, especially around the 4th century, to think very hard about what the Bible actually says when it comes to the Trinity. Christians were forced to clarify and explain the doctrine of the Trinity. What does it mean when we say this? And how does this fit with that? Well, in this third talk, what we're going to do is we're going to take each of these two heresies and explore how Christians have responded to them over the centuries. Uh, We'll essentially use these heresies as a bit of a launching pad to unpack the doctrine of the Trinity. So, in our first part, we're going to explore Arianism, which overplays the threeness, and we'll see that Christians respond by saying, no, Father, Son, and Spirit are fundamentally united, God united. And in particular, Christians use the word essence to explain that unity. So, first part, Arianism and the unity of essence, and we'll unpack what that means. 
But then in the second part of this talk, we're going to explore modalism, which overplays the oneness. And we'll see how Christians responded by saying, no, the Father, Son, and Spirit are each distinct from one another. And in particular, they use the word persons to explain that distinction. So second point, modalism and the distinction of the persons, and we'll unpack what that means. As we do this, the aim is that we will come away with a far deeper appreciation of the doctrine of the Trinity, and in particular, we'll see why it's not only coherent, but also deeply biblical to believe in a God who is one in essence and three in persons. But right from the get-go, there's a problem we need to address, and the problem is this. You won't find any of the words like essence or persons in the Bible, at least how theologians use those words. Those words aren't in the Bible. And maybe you say, oh, big deal, we use non-Bible words all the time. But there are some people who will point to that and say, see, none of this stuff is in the Bible, which means the Trinity isn't biblical. Remember Adolf von Harnack? That was his complaint. So what do we say about that? Is it okay to use these words that aren't in the Bible? The first thing to say is that explaining the Bible often means using words that aren't in the Bible. To explain the Bible, we might need words that aren't in the Bible. Just think about um, a dictionary. You know when you go to a dictionary and they do that annoying thing where they use the same word that you're looking at in the definition? You know, the definition of imminence is to be imminent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we actually need to use different words to define things and explain what we mean. Same with the Bible. We need words that might not be in the Bible to explain what is in the Bible. The only question is whether it's a good explanation, a faithful one. Is the word essence a good and faithful explanation of what is in the Bible. In a sense, these words become little summaries of what the Bible teaches. I've got a quote there from Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. He makes the point that if we can only use Bible words, technically, the only thing we could ever do is just quote Bible verses and only in the original languages. Have a look at what he says. If we could speak of God only in the very terms themselves of Scripture, it would follow that no one could speak about God in any but the original language of the Old or New Testament. He then says, the urgency of confuting heretics made it necessary to find new words to express the ancient faith about God. Just at the end of the quote there, Aquinas points to another reason why these words are so important. They also help us explain what the Bible doesn't say. He calls it confuting heretics. Um, but the point is, is that these words like essence and persons can actually help us explain what we don't believe. They're like guardrails that protect us against heresy and false teaching. That's actually how these words first started being used. Christians didn't really need these words before these big heresies came along. It's only when people started to tweak the Trinity 
that they needed these words to explain and to clarify the doctrine. That leads to another quick thing before we jump into Arianism. Some people make the point that the Trinity uh, was really only nutted out in the 4th century. And they'll go to that and say, see, the doctrine was actually invented hundreds of years after the Bible. What about the first few centuries? Did they not believe in the Trinity then? I'm not really going to answer that question, but what I have done, I've given you two quotes there that you can chase up later if you are interested. But with that said, let me introduce you to Arius of Alexandria. Arius was actually a pastor in the 3rd and 4th centuries. We don't know a lot about him, but it seems like he was tall, attractive, and smart. But Arius also had something else. He had some strange views about the Trinity. Have a read with me of what he said towards the end of the 3rd century. Heads up, viewer discretion, this is heresy. (laughs) He says... God was not always a father. Once, God was alone and not yet a father, but afterwards, He became a father. The Son was not always. He came from nothing. He is not the very, i.e. true, God. Though He is called God, He is not very truly God, but by participation of grace, He, as others, is God only in name. The Son, like all other created things, is unlike the Father and is alien to the Father's essence. Now, what's Arius saying there? Well, what he actually believed is that Jesus wasn't God in the same way as the Father. He was simply the first and greatest being that God created, which leaves the Son somewhere in between God and the rest of creation, somewhere in the middle. And God only became a Father when He created the Son, which means that the Son is fundamentally unlike the Father. And Arius uses the word essence to explain that difference. Arius actually claimed to be a Bible guy. His key verse was in Proverbs 8. Uh, we, uh, you can see it there in your booklet, we won't read it, but that was his verse. And Arius wasn't alone in his beliefs. He actually became kind of a figurehead for the ancient movement we call Arianism. And their key belief was that Jesus is subordinate to the Father. He is unlike the Father, alien to his essence. So, how did faithful Christians respond to Arianism? Well, they responded by saying, no, the Son isn't unlike the Father, He's actually fundamentally united with the Father. And in particular, they said, the Son isn't alien to the Father's essence, He's actually of the same essence. What does that actually mean to say that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father? Where did they get that from in the Bible? That should be our question. Let me introduce you to another guy, Athanasius. Like Arius, Athanasius was also a pastor. He lived in the same city, Alexandria, around the 4th century. Athanasius was one of the guys who led the charge against 
Arius. So, just to be clear, we like Athanasius. <laughs> now, I could just tell you what Athanasius said, but I actually want to show you how he used the Bible and to show you how he got the word essence from the Bible. One of the key verses he went to was 1 Corinthians 8.6. He went to a lot. We're going to look at one. We looked at this yesterday. Let's read it again. Paul says, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Well, what Athanasius is going to point out is that if all things were made through Jesus, then there's no way he could have been created. If Jesus had been created, which is what Arius thought, then Paul could have only said that almost all things were made through Jesus, except for him, of course. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that whatever was made by the Father was also made through Jesus. Have a look at how Athanasius explains it. He says, if all things are through him, he himself is not to be reckoned with that all. For he who dares to call him through whom are all things one of that all, surely will have like speculations concerning God from whom are all. Such words may be used of the creatures, but as to the Son, He is such as the Father is, of whose essence He is proper. Now, did you notice how Athanasius used that language of essence at the end there? Saying that Jesus is proper to the Father's essence? What does that mean? What does he mean when he says that? What he's saying is, is that there is a fundamental difference between us and Jesus. Jesus was never created, the Son. Now, the Word did become flesh in the person of Jesus, but that's different to being created. And Athanasius is saying that Jesus was never created, which means there's a fundamental difference between Jesus and us or anything else in creation. We were created, He was not. And if he's unlike us in that way, then that must mean that he is like the Father. Whatever God the Father is, that's what Jesus is as well. That's what he means when he says that the Son is proper to the Father's essence. So, we have a a theologian there who's going to help us understand what Athanasius said. He says this, Athanasius' positive statements about the divinity of the Son and Spirit are apophatic, which just means negative, negative statements, insofar as they differentiate Son and Spirit from the created order. They are primarily negations of creatureliness as applied to Son and Spirit. The Son is proper to the Father, while All of creation is external to or from outside the Father. It's a bit wordy. Did you catch that? Remember the fundamental distinction between God and the world? When push comes to shove, Arius puts the sun on the world side of the line. Now, Arius will make the point that Jesus is, he is exalted above everything else, but he's ultimately unlike God. Um, I've got a little diagram there. 
Athanasius says, no, Jesus was never created. He actually belongs with the Father on the God side of the line. He is proper to, he belongs with the Father. Now, as I said earlier, the Son does come into the world in the person of Jesus, but He never stops being God. He never leaves the God side of the line. And there was never a time when He wasn't there. That's what it means for the Son to belong to the Father's essence. He is internal to God, not external. Everything else is external. So that's Arius and Athanasius. And at one level, they were just two pastors trying to work out who Jesus was. But that would also be to massively understate how much of a big deal this was in the fourth century. Um, This debate about who the Son is in relation to the Father actually threatened to split not only churches, but the entire Eastern Roman Empire, so much so that the emperor of the Roman Empire was like, what is going on? So, in 325 AD, a few hundred church leaders got together at a place called Nicaea to nut out all this stuff, to work out what the Bible actually says, what Christians believed, and it was at that council where they decided Arianism was in fact heresy, unbiblical. The creed that we read out just before we started this, that Nicene Creed, that was the outcome of that council. That's what they came up with. And that little section um, about being of the same essence as the Father, that was the bit that Arius couldn't agree to. It's there in your booklet, you can see it there, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. And when they said same essence, what they're really saying is that the Son wasn't created, He wasn't made. He was there before creation, existing from eternity with the Father. And the Father was never without His Son. And if you're wondering where the Spirit is in all this, the historical reality is that they were mainly focused on the Son at this point. Um, But they would soon end up saying the same thing about the Spirit in the years that would follow. He too is of the same essence as the Father and the Son. But let's push a little deeper into what we actually mean when we say they are of the same essence. And I think the best way to explain that is under two headings, unity of attributes and unity of action. They are the same thing and they do the same thing. That's what it means for them to have the same essence. So let's explore the unity of attributes first. And when I say attributes, I'm talking about characteristics, qualities that God is described as having in the Bible. I've got four quick examples there to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, God is light, God is love, God is spirit, and then God says, I am holy. 
They are some of God's attributes, light, love, spirit, holiness. There are more we could add. But before we talk about the Father, Son, and Spirit each having the same attributes, we first need to talk about what it means for God to have attributes at all. If we can lock a few things in place here, it's going to help us later. And what theologians have always emphasized is that God doesn't have attributes in the same way as we do. He's not like us. See, when it comes to us as people, we think about our attributes or characteristics as if they were a slice of cake. A slice of cake. Maybe there's a slice of assertiveness, another slice of humility, uh, or even a slice of humor. But they're essentially different parts or aspects of who we are. You know, this is basically what the Myers-Briggs test is. I'm an INTJ, but I'm only 60% introverted. And what's more, our attributes can sometimes change over time. We change. And sometimes our characteristics will even be contradictory and we'll feel like we're being torn between two different things. But when it comes to God... The danger is that we think of him in the same way, as if we could slice him up into his different attributes. He is his love, and he is his holiness. Or sometimes we might even think of him as having more of one attribute than others. He's got a big slice of love and a sliver of justice. But that's not how careful theologians have described God's attributes. Careful theologians have always emphasized what's known as the doctrine of simplicity. The doctrine of simplicity. And the doctrine of simplicity says that God is identical with each of his attributes. Love is not just something that God has. Love is what he is. Whatever God has is what He is. It's not just part of Him. There are no parts or variations in God. He is pure love. And there is nothing in Him other than love. He's also pure holiness. And there is nothing in Him that isn't holy which means he isn't one thing more than another thing. There is no greater or lesser with God. There is nothing in God other than God. And everything he is, he is through and through. He is entirely love. He is entirely light. He is entirely holy. That is who he is. That's what we mean when we say God is simple. Look at how Oregon of Alexandria explains divine simplicity. He says, God admits within himself no addition of any kind, so that he cannot be believed to have within him a greater and a less, lest the simplicity of the divine nature should appear to be found composite and differing. No addition no greater, no lesser, no composite, no difference, pure, simple God. 
One of the key Bible verses that theologians like Oregon went to was Exodus 3, where God says to Moses, I am who I am. Did you catch that? God is who He is. Or to put it differently, God has, whatever God has, is what He is. Is He loving? Is He loving? He is love. You can't say that about us. We can love, but we are not love. God loves and He is love. And there is no change or development with God. Have a look at what James 1.17 says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is what He is, eternally and unchangingly. He will never not be love. And what does all this mean? It means that all of these attributes are really just ways of talking about God's essence, who He is. God's essence is His love, which is the same as His holiness, which is the same as His light. They are descriptions of who God is. And although we talk about these attributes as if they were different, all we're really doing is turning around the diamond of God's character, seeing it catch the light in different ways. And when we say that the Son is of the same essence as the Father, what we are saying is that whatever the Father has, the Son has. Whatever the Father is, the Son is. Is the Father love? So to the Son. Is the Father light? So to the Son. And we could say the same thing for the Spirit. And one of the key Bible verses where we actually see this in action is John 5, 26. Have a look at what it says. Jesus is speaking, He says, As the Father has life in Himself so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Did you catch that? The Father and the Son both have life in themselves. They have exactly the same thing. The Son doesn't just have life from the Father, He has life in Himself. They don't just have life though, they are life. Remember John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are the same thing. Love, life, holiness. That's what we mean when they are the same essence. Now, if I've lost you, or if you tuned out, tune back in, because I'll tell you why this unity of attributes matters. And doesn't just matter a little bit, your salvation depends upon unity of attributes. Here's why. If Jesus isn't absolutely identical in attributes to the Father, then He has not revealed God to us. We don't know God if Jesus isn't the same as the Father in what He is. We don't know the Father if Jesus doesn't reveal Him. Have a look at what Athanasius says. He says, The Father is eternal, immortal, 
powerful, light, king, sovereign, God, Lord, creator, and maker. And he says, these attributes must be in the image, he's talking about the Son, to make it true that he that has seen the Son has seen the Father. Grace City, Jesus is and has all that the Father is and has. And because of that, we can say, we know God. That's the unity of attributes. But what about unity of action? Well, in the same way that each of the three are the same thing, they also do the same thing. Have a look at how Scott Swain explains this. God's transcendent oneness not only shapes our understanding of God's being, it also shapes our understanding of God's work. Because of divine simplicity, the external works of the triune God are not parceled out among the persons, with each person perhaps doing his share to contribute to a larger whole. The external works of the triune God are indivisible. All of God's works, from creation to consummation, are works of the three persons enacting one divine power, ordered by one divine wisdom, expressing one divine goodness, and manifesting one divine glory. What's he saying there? What he's saying is that all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, are active in every work of God. In everything that God does, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all present. None of them sits around while the others do something. Just think back to what we saw in creation yesterday. All three were present in creation. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by His Spirit all their host. All three create together. Or just think about salvation. Who saves you? The Father does. And the Son does. And the Spirit does. Or think about Revelation. We'll see this in talk four later this Savo. But all three are there in the act of revelation, revealing God to us. This is actually what's known as the doctrine of inseparable operations. Uh, Augustine, he's the most well-known theologian for making this point. This is how he puts it. He says, the Trinity works indivisibly in everything that God works. Now, Augustine himself acknowledges this is a bit of a mind-bender. How is it that none of the three do something without the other two? And it's worth asking, where do we see this in the Bible? Where is it in the Bible? And one of the key places is John 5. So, context for this passage, Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath, and when he's questioned about it, this is what he says. Have a look. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Him. Not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself. 
He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Did you catch that? Whatever the father does, the son does also. And the son does nothing by himself. Whenever the father is at work, so too the son is working. And in verse 18, the author John makes the point that if Jesus does exactly what the Father does, that makes him equal with God. That's what we mean when we say that the Son is of the same essence as the Father. He does what the Father does, and neither does anything by himself. We could say the same thing for the Spirit. He too is present in all of God's works. Have a look at um, how Paul says that we've been both justified and sanctified by the Spirit. Do you know you've been justified by the Spirit? Have a look. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Can you see how this is more than just cooperation or more than just a division of labour? They're not just a team working on the same project. They don't kind of divide up different parts of the work. It's not just teamwork. It's actually unity of action. It's not like a marriage where, you know, you take the rubbish out, I'll do the dishes. Um, that's what we mean when we say they are of the same essence. They are the same thing and they do the same thing. They are one. I'm going to have a drink. <laughs> you can breathe. Um, here's a question for you. If the Father, Son, and Spirit all do the same thing, what do we make of, say, the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends in a dove and we hear a voice speaking, saying, you are my son? What do we make of that? Have a chat. <laughs> Amy, Amy. All right, let's bring it back. <clears throat> so, so far we've explored Arianism and we saw how Christians said no. Father, Son and Spirit are of the same essence, they're one, which means they are the same thing and they do the same thing. But, and it's a big but, it is possible to so overemphasize God's oneness that we lose the threeness. And this is actually what happened after the Council of Nicaea. See, some people pushed so hard against Arianism that they actually went all the way over into something we call modalism. And modalism flattens out any distinction. 
Uh, one of those guys, you don't need to know this, but one of the guys was Marcellus of Ancyra. Um, some people accused him of following in the footsteps of Sibelius, which is why sometimes if you look at a book, sometimes modalism is called Sibelianism. Good. The key idea of modalism is that there is really only one God who just appears in different ways, like a single actor with three different masks. Have a look at how Scott Swain explains it. He says, according to modalism, the three persons of the Trinity have no real and distinct existence apart from God's interaction with the world. The three persons are merely different modes of God's interaction with the world. Divine emanations that come into existence to accomplish God's work in the world and then cease to exist when God's work in the world is completed. That's what modalism is. And here's where we run into a pretty major complexity. This is the complexity of eternity. See, modalism doesn't actually just say no to any distinctions in God. It actually says something far more slippery, far more sinister. Have a look at what Scott Swain says in the first line of that quote. According to modalism, the three persons of the Trinity have no real and distinct existence apart from God's interaction with the world. Did you catch that? Modalism says there are distinctions within God, but only in His interactions with the world. Before the creation of the world, there were no distinctions, which means there was no Father, no Son, no Spirit before creation, just an undefined blob of divinity, simply called God. God only appears to be Father, Son, Spirit in creation, but that's not what He is from eternity. Those distinctions don't uh, extend into eternity. I've tried to capture that a little bit with the diagram there with modalism. And it could be that you're listening to this, and this sounds super abstract, and you're like, why does this matter? Here's why. Your salvation depends upon how we answer this question. If God is not the same in eternity as He is in creation, then we don't really know God. It's all just a facade, and He's actually something very different to what we think He is. It's all a lie. I've got a quote here from T.F. Torrance. Heads up, this is probably the most mind-bending quote of the whole weekend. Here we go. What he says is pure gold. Here we go. The historical manifestations of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have evangelical and theological significance only as they have a trans-historical and trans-finite reference beyond to an ultimate ground in God Himself. They cannot be gospel if their reference breaks off at the finite boundaries of this world of space and time. For as such, they would be empty of divine validity and saving significance. The historical manifestations of the Trinity are gospel, however, if they are grounded beyond history, in the eternal personal distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit inherent in the Godhead. In the Gospel, God does not just appear to, be us, to us to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for He really 
is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Himself and reveals Himself as such. What's the point? If there are distinctions between the Father, Son, and Spirit in creation, there must also be those same distinctions reflected in God's eternal existence. Otherwise, we don't know God and we aren't saved. I've got a little diagram there that tries to capture some of this. If you're wondering why I put dashes into eternity, that's simply because God is never limited by creation. He's infinitely more than we could ever grasp or imagine. But at at the same time, those distinctions we see in creation must be infinitely and eternally reflected in God's personal existence, otherwise we don't know God. breathe. Let me ask you this. If the Father, Son, and Spirit are all of the same essence, which means they are and do the same thing, then what is it that actually separates them from one another? What distinguishes them from the others? Or another way of putting it is for us to ask, what can we say that is only true of the Son? What is only true of the Spirit? And as we talked earlier, If there is a difference between them in creation, then we not only can, we actually have to read those distinctions back into God's eternal existence. And I want to start with Jesus, because in Jesus we find something that is true only of the Son, not Father or the Spirit. Only the Son became a man. Only He took on flesh. Have a look at what Karl Rahner says. Jesus is not simply God in general, but the Son, the second divine person. God's logos, which means word, is man. And only He is man. But we can actually go further than just saying that only the Son became man. Because what we see in Jesus is we see Him always relating to the Father in a certain way, and the Father relates to Him in a certain way. And what we see is that everything Jesus is, does, and says, is from the Father. There is a relationship of fromness that fundamentally shapes how Jesus relates to the Father. Um, You can actually see um, this in the fact that Jesus is sent from the Father to come into the world. John 16, he says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. The Son doesn't send the Father. No, the Father sends the Son, and the Son is from the Father. But it's more than just the fact that Jesus is sent by the Father into the world. This relationship of fromness actually defines everything that Jesus is has and does. Have another look at John 5.26. We looked at it earlier, let's look at it again. As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Did you notice that there is a definite relationship going on there? The Father and Son have exactly the same thing, life in themselves. But the Son has life in Himself from the Father the Father grants it to Him. And that relationship isn't reversible. 
it wouldn't be right to say that the Son grants the Father to have life in Himself. There is an asymmetrical relationship. It's the relationship of a Father to His Son, and everything the Son has is from the Father. But this doesn't just shape everything that Jesus has, it also shapes everything He does. So, have another look at that verse we read earlier, but this time notice the relationship of fromness. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father and Son have and do the same thing, but everything the Son has and does is from the Father. Look at how Scott Swain explains this. I think this is super helpful. What distinguishes the Father from the Son is not what they have. What distinguishes the Father from the Son is their distinct personal modes of having what they have. The person of the Father has life in Himself from Himself. The person of the Son has life in Himself from the Father. And as we've already said, this relationship of fromness can't just be something that we see in creation. It actually has to be an eternal relationship of fromness for us to say that we know God. And this is what we call eternal begetting. And this is what we see in the Nicene Creed. Begetting is how they define that relationship of fromness. Have a look at uh, that same little section again. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. The Son is and has everything from the Father, and this is what we call eternal begetting. And this is the only difference between the Father and the Son. A theologian called Tertullian, he explains it really succinctly when he says this, the Father is distinct from the Son inasmuch as He who begets is one and He who is begotten is another. The difference between them is their relation of Father to Son. And we can say the same thing of the Spirit. So, let's have a read of John 15. Um, And as we do, let's have a look out for the language of fromness. But this time, we'll see the Spirit is both sent from the Son, uh, so the Spirit is sent from the Father, but is also sent by the Son. It says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. The Spirit is both from the Father and is also from the Son, which means that everything the Spirit is and does is both from the Father and the Son. Have a look at John 16 and notice this language of having and taking. Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the Spirit has is from the Son. 
And everything the Son has is from the Father. They have the same thing, but not in the same way. But the Spirit's relation isn't the same as being begotten. Theologians have described the Spirit's relation as procession. And this language actually comes from John 15, which we just read, where it says, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And just like eternal begetting, we also need to say that this is an eternal procession. And those relations of begetting and proceeding are the only thing that distinguishes the Father from the Son and the Son from the Spirit. These are their eternal relations of origin. They have and do the same thing, but not in the same way. And this brings us to the language of persons. Because Father, Son and Spirit, they're not just like relations, like a relation isn't a thing. The relations are almost the thing that's shared between them. There is actually one who begets and one who is begotten. They are the three. And throughout the centuries, Christian theologians have always referred to these three as persons. They are the ones who are doing the relating and their names are Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Have a look at how Thomas Aquinas defines what a person is. This is perhaps the most well-known definition. He says, distinction in God is only by relation of origin. A divine person signifies a relation as subsisting, which just means basically existing. And what he's saying is that there aren't just relations, there's actually one who relates. That's what he means by the weird word subsisting. But here's where we run into a big problem. See, the language of person is actually quite unhelpful. Here's why. Because when we hear the language of person, we actually have a whole bunch of assumptions about what it means to be a person. And what we actually end up doing is assuming that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are three different people. Three different centers of consciousness with three different wills, which is not how these first theologians use the word persons. Because remember, um, they don't have different things, they have the same thing, just in different ways that reflect their relations. They have the same will, but not in the same way. The Son has the same will as the Father, but He has it from the Father. This is why we say that there are three persons in the Trinity, but not three people. Have a look at what Karl Barth says. He says, person as used in the church doctrine of the Trinity bears no direct relation to personality. The meaning of the doctrine is not then that there are three personalities in God, In it, we are speaking not of three divine eyes, but thrice of the one divine eye. You could be listening to this and wondering, so why do we keep using the word if it's so unhelpful? Why not just ditch it, use another word? I mean, we could, we could use the word subsistence. That isn't that, it's not that helpful either. Here's why. We have to say something. And this is basically the best we've got. Our language actually starts to break down when we start to describe God. 
but that doesn't mean we can't say something. Have a look at what Augustine says. I think this is great. He says, we say three persons, not in order to say that precisely, but in order not to be reduced to silence. So when we say that there are three persons in the Trinity, all we're saying is that there is one named Son, and He has everything that the Father has, except He has it from the Father. And there is one named Spirit, and He has everything that the Father and Son have, except He has it from the Father through the Son. Their relations are what distinguish them. But it could be that this just sounds super abstract, but stick with me because I think things might start to fall into place a little bit as we, talking, as we talk about how these distinctions play out in God's actions. So how are God's actions shaped by His relations as Father, Son, and Spirit? Let me start, remind, start by reminding you of what we saw earlier, which is that all three of them are active in all of God's works. None of them sits around while the other two act. They work indivisibly. But that doesn't mean they do the same thing in the same way. They actually complete the same act in a way that reflects their relations. Have a look at what our faithful guide, Scott Swain, says. As God's being is simple and indivisible, so His works are undivided and inseparable. As three distinct persons eternally exist within God's simple, indivisible being, so there is a threefold order of operation within God's undivided, inseparable works. God's external actions proceed from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. There is a threefold shape to God's undivided works. And we can use the language of from, through, and in to describe that. And that is the language of the Bible itself. Have a look again at 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But now look out for the words from and through. For, that, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Now, Paul doesn't specifically mention the Spirit in this verse. But in a place like Ephesians 1, he will use the word in to describe the work of the Spirit. And what these words are getting at is that God's relations are reflected in His actions. The Father is, the Father is always, in a sense, the originating agent, and the Son is the mediating agent, and the Spirit is the finishing agent. The acts of creation, salvation, and revelation are all done from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. And that's the language that the Bible consistently uses itself. But there's one final complexity, and this is the very last thing we'll talk about before we wrap things up for this talk. The final complexity is this. Sometimes the Bible will associate a particular work with one particular person of the Trinity, as if one work belonged to one of the Trinity. So sometimes the Bible will describe the Father in particular as the Creator, it will call the Father Creator, or it might specifically describe the Son as the Saviour, or call the Spirit in particular as the Giver of Life. What's going on there? Have a listen once more to Scott Swain. 
Scripture specially identifies distinct persons of the Trinity with distinct works of the Trinity because certain works more specially manifest certain persons of the Trinity. Now, what on earth is he saying there? What he's saying is that some of God's works are more reflective of one of the persons than the others. In a sense, some works are more aligned with one of the persons than the others. Let me explain what I mean. We've already established that the Son and the Spirit have a relationship of fromness to the Father, which means that the Father is, in a sense, the originator. And because creation is an act of origination, the Bible calls Him Creator, which is not at all to say that the Son and the Spirit aren't active in the work of creation. All we're saying is that creation is an act that particularly highlights who the Father is in relation to the Son and the Spirit. Well, think of the Spirit. He is the one who has everything from both the Father and the Son, and so it's appropriate that we identify Him as the one who takes the work of salvation and applies it to us. He finishes it. And all of this is what we call the doctrine of appropriation. Appropriation. And we call it that because some of the Trinity's undivided works are more appropriate to one of the persons than the others. And this isn't arbitrary. These appropriations reflect their eternal relations. And this is actually what the Nicene Creed does. Did you notice how it identified the Father as the Creator and the Son as the Saviour and the Spirit as the Giver of Life? We aren't saying that only the Father creates. What we're saying is that this work particularly reflects who He is as Father. I've done up a little table there which shows you these appropriations in the Nicene Creed. But it could be that you're sitting there and wondering, why doesn't the Bible just stick to the same way of talking? That'd be helpful. Either just say that the Father created through the Son and in the Spirit, He saves us through the Son and in the Spirit, and He gives us life through the Son and in the Spirit. Or just say that the Father made us, the Son saves us, and the Spirit sanctifies us. Why does it give us these different ways of speaking that seem to just complicate things? It's, is it because the Trinity is incoherent after all? No, here's why. The Bible uses these different ways of speaking to protect us from overly simplistic ways of talking about our God. It uses these different ways of speaking to protect us from overemphasizing the oneness or overemphasizing the threeness. As soon as we think we see the one, we're encircled by the three, and as soon as we see the three, we're carried back to the one. Let me close. We started by pointing out that any desire to tweak the Trinity and help it make a bit more sense will always end in either overstating the oneness or overstating the threeness. They both have disastrous consequences. And so we explored Arianism, that overplays the threeness. We saw how faithful Christians said, no, God is one in essence, which means the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same thing and do the same thing. Then we looked at modalism, that overplays the oneness. We saw how Christians said, no, they're distinguished by their relations, which means they have and do the same things, but not in the same way. We describe them as being three persons, but not three people. And when we hold these things together, we can actually come to a deeper appreciation of why it's not only coherent, but also deeply biblical 
to believe in a God who is one in essence and three in persons. Would you pray with me to our Heavenly Father? Heavenly Father, you are glorious and mighty and your ways are beyond us. And yet you have graciously revealed yourself to us in your Son and by your Spirit. You have shown us who you are and you have proven your love, holiness and light to us in the death of your Son. We praise you and ask that we might know you even as we are known by you. And we pray it in your Son's name. Amen.